We're looking at English translations of the Bible, continuing on. We've looked at the Old English or Anglo-Saxon period, the Middle English period, and we're in the Modern English period, what we might call the Early Modern period, 1475 to 1780, which will take us up to the King James Version and its revisions, the last one in 1769. We were talking last time about Henry VIII a little bit, just to get our history straight. Henry had six wives, but uh, we were involved with Bible translations in these various uh, uh, wives. Uh, The the last uh, one we were interested in was Elizabeth, who came to the throne in 1558. Elizabeth came to the throne in 1558. And uh, it was during her reign, 1560, you remember, that the Geneva Bible was translated in Geneva by Protestants who had fled England, English Protestants who had fled uh, from England into Geneva. Now, they could start coming back when she came to the throne in 1558, but some remained there and completed the Geneva Bible in 1560. And uh, we said the Geneva Bible was the most popular Bible in England from 1560 until at least about 25 years after the King James came out. So for at least 75 years, this was the most popular Bible in England. So income was increasing, more people could read, and people had the ability to buy this Bible. It was produced in cheaper versions. And if a person had a Bible, uh, a Christian had a Bible, they would generally have the Geneva Bible if they weren't Roman Catholic. Roman Catholics were kind of forbidden from even reading the Bible. So uh, this was the Bible they would have had would have been the Geneva Bible, 1560. It was extremely well done. Remember, it's the first Bible to be translated fully from the original Hebrew and Greek, completely translated. It was extremely well done, very well done. Now, it, it built off these other Bibles, the Great Bible, remember, Coverdale's Bible, Matthew's Bible, uh, Tyndall's work mainly, so it, it built off those other Bibles, but this was extremely well done. I didn't mention last week this little note that they had about the Apocrypha, because I keep mentioning about the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha were those 15 books done by Jews during the intertestamental period, remember? During the time of the Old Testament and New Testament. This was religious literature. This was religious literature done for Jews by Jews. Now, the Jews never accepted it as part of their Bible. They never accepted it in their canon. They don't accept it today. They just accept the 39 books of the Old Testament. Roman Catholics accepted the Apocrypha in 1546 officially. But during the Middle Ages, the Apocrypha was highly valued. It was in the Vulgate. It was in the manuscripts of the Vulgate. It was in the Geneva Bible. It's in every one of these English Bibles has the Apocrypha in it, even though these people who did the Geneva Bible were absolutely anti-Catholic to the core. This is the most anti-Roman Catholic Bible ever done, the Geneva Bible. So these people were opposed to Roman Catholics, but they had the Apocrypha in there. And this is what they say. They say... um, uh, These books that follow in order after the prophets unto the New Testament are called Apocrypha. That is, books which are not received by common consent to be read and expounded publicly in the church, neither 
yet serve to prove any point of a Christian religion save in as much as they had the content of the other scripture called canonical to confirm the same or whither, whither and so forth so they have this, this long statement here saying we've got the Apocrypha here but these are just religious books by godly people they say they're valuable for reading but we don't use them to confirm any doctrine and so forth and they adamantly rejected them as part of the canon remember the Geneva Bible had all these nice new things like clear Roman type, which was a little easier to read. It was the, it had the, it was the first English Bible that had the verse divisions in it that came over from the 1551 Greek New Testament from uh, uh, Elzevir. And so, uh, so, so this is the first Bible to have verse divisions. It's, an, it's the first Bible to have italics here for words inserted by the translator and it had a huge number of notes it was the first really study Bible you've seen these large study Bibles MacArthur study Bible uh, NIV study Bible this this is as big as they are this thing had as many notes as those study Bibles did tremendous so this was extremely valuable because you lived in the 16 you lived in 1600 you couldn't go to the Christian bookstore and buy all these books that we buy this was the only source of religious literature you had, the Geneva Bible, and the notes were extremely influential. And here it is. It's very similar to the King James because the King James just builds upon previous versions. Tyndall, uh, Coverdale's Bible, Matthew's Bible, the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible. They just build upon each other. We come now to the Bishop's Bible. In our notes today, you can see. Uh, as I say, the Geneva Bible was superior to the Great Bible, and so it became clear that it's going to have to be replaced. Uh, the Geneva Bible was the Bible that people were using. That's what they wanted. The Great Bible was the Bible in the churches, and so we, they, they had, there had to be some something done about the Great Bible. It's inferior. And so Matthew Parker, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, who is the head clergyman in the Church of England, the Anglican Church, appointed by Queen Elizabeth, he decided that uh, we've got to have a new Bible to replace the uh, the Great Bible. They didn't want the Geneva. Why don't they just say, let's accept the Geneva Bible? Because the Geneva Bible had these very Calvinistic notes, extremely Calvinistic, very strong. And the Anglican Church is an uneasy compromise between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. And so it's not it's not as Calvinistic as say the Reformed churches are, Presbyterians were, Lutherans were, and so forth. <clears throat> and so in the Church of England, Matthew Parker especially, wouldn't accept the Geneva Bible. They didn't want the notes. They wanted a Bible that didn't have any notes. So that people, you know, so it could be appealing to all people of different religious persuasions. Because in the Church of England you've got all kinds of people of different religious persuasions even though they supposedly agree on the articles of the church so Parker himself was the editor in chief it's called the bishop's bible because it was done apparently by people who were bishops or would eventually become bishops in the Anglican church and they produced this Geneva bible it began uh, work around 1566, 1567. It was produced in 1568. Um, the revisers were only to depart from the, as I say here, 
from the Great Bible where it did not accurately represent the original. So they were supposed to make a revision of the Great Bible, which was the Bible authorized to be used in the Church of England, and correct it, make it better, bring it up to date. They were supposed to consult Latin translations, German translations, Hebrew text, uh, and they were supposed to put some notes in there, but they were supposed to be non-controversial notes. The bishop, the Geneva Bible had all kinds of notes saying the Pope is Antichrist and all kinds of stuff. So, you, you know, you can't, they didn't want those kind of notes in there and so forth. Um, there's the Bishop's Bible. It goes back to the Gothic kind of black block type. It's got the verse divisions now uh, that we see. And here it is. Very similar again to the King James, uh, which is later, of course. But you can see the King James is just a revision of these earlier Bibles. Uh, the Bishop's Bible was sort of uneven. Some parts were better than other parts. It was uneven because it didn't have a review committee to go over and kind of smooth things out and review things, like, for instance, the King James Version did. Uh, but the Bishop's Bible did replace the Great Bible as the church authorized to be read in the Church of England. So it's sort of the second authorized version. It was revised again in 1569-1572. Let's stop our, our history here for a moment and jump over to the Roman Catholics for a second. Um, the Roman Catholics, of course, uh, used the Latin Vulgate as their Bible. In 1546, the Council of Trent, one of the chief councils of the, of the church, declared that the, the Latin Vulgate is the authorized, authoritative version of the Bible. You go back to the Latin Vulgate, that's it. Not the Greek, not the Hebrew, the Latin Vulgate is the authorized Bible. But um, there came, became a need for a uh, Catholic Bible, and that's what we're talking about here with the Douay-Rheims 1609-1610. So this was, a, as I say, the first Catholic translation of the Bible into English. It was produced by English Roman Catholics who refused to, to accept the Elizabethan Compromise. They would not join the Church of England. They had to flee England. Remember when Mary came to the throne and she brought the Roman Catholic Church back in after her father had broke, took him out, she persecuted Protestants and burned down. Well, these Catholics had to flee. Roman Catholics had to flee after then, and they left, and so forth. And one of the exiles, a man by the name of William Allen, uh, founded a college at Douai, France. The college, as I say, was moved to Reims in 1578, back to Douai in 1593. The purpose of this college was to train a new kind of priest, a priest who could contend with the Protestants, who could speak to Protestants and argue with them from the scriptures. Uh, as I say, one of the professors of the college, Greg Martin, translated the Bible from Latin, Vulgate, with the aid of his colleagues, William Allen and Richard Bristow. So this is a translation of the Bible 
from Latin, the authorized, authoritative version, into English. Um, there was some consultation of the original languages, that is, where you put the article and things like that. But basically, so first of all, the first uh, translation was the Old Testament, but the New Testament was the first published. So they published first a New Testament, the Reims New Testament, 1582. So it was done in Douay, it was done in Reims, that's why you get the final name Douay Reims. 1582, the New Testament. And then the Old Testament, 1609-1610. So by 1609-1610, you had a complete Roman Catholic Bible, the Douay Reims Bible. Um, as you can see, it has the verse divisions and so forth. But it's a translation from the Latin Vulgate. Now, the reason for this uh, translation um, is not to make the Word of God accessible so that the common, everyday Roman Catholic can read the Bible. The Roman Catholic Church was opposed, basically, to people reading the Bible because uh, they would they would find, they would pick up wrong doctrines. They would they would follow Luther and his heresies or Tyndall and his heresies. So they were opposed to the, the layperson being able to read and interpret Scripture. Uh, they didn't believe in what we call the priesthood of the believer, or the, the believer has the right to read the Scripture, soul liberty, where the, the, the believer has the right to study for himself and make up their own mind and so forth. We believe in teachers. God has put teachers, pastors, and teachers in the church to help us. But ultimately it comes down, we have to decide for ourselves what is what is salvation, what is not, what is correct, what God is teaching or not. So uh, this Bible was not made to give Roman Catholics a Bible they could read in their own language. This was a Bible that was designed for mainly clergy, for priests. Uh, the reason for this Bible came about was because we started getting these debates between Protestants and Catholics. And the Catholics priests are having a difficult time debating because the English Protestants are citing their Bibles. They're citing the Geneva Bible, they're citing the Bishop's Bible and so forth. And when and, and when the Roman Catholic priest wants to debate, he's got to translate from the Latin on the flop into English, which is hard to do. Just you're, you you know what the Latin Vulgate says, you got to bring it into English. So they wanted a Bible in English that they could trust, that they could say was proper and right and so forth. So they could uh, translate uh, the Bible, and so they did. And I don't know why that slide does that, but anyway, it did. Um, so here's the Douay Reims, 1609-1610. Um, it was revised in 1749, 1750 by Bishop Chaloner, a Roman Catholic bishop. Uh, all this is based on the Latin Vulgate. Now, later we'll talk about how this works out in the present because in 1941, uh, this was revised again called the Confraternity New Testament. Ultimately, it comes down to what's called the New American Bible. So the, usually the most popular Catholic Bible today, if a Roman Catholic person has a Bible, they'll have usually the New American Bible. And all this goes back to the do a ream 16 or 9, 16 or 10, but I'll, I'll explain how that how that works out later when we get to the later down in the history here. That brings us to the King James Version finally, 1611. 
as I say here uh, on the King James, after Elizabeth's death in 1603, because she left no heir, she was succeeded by King James VI of Scotland. Here he is, 1603 to 1625. He was the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, a descendant of Henry VII. So this is a hard chart to figure out exactly, but here's Elizabeth. She's the daughter of Henry VIII. She had no heir. She had no uh, heir. So they were looking for somebody of royal blood. Henry the Henry the uh, the seventh, Henry the eighth's father, had a daughter, Mary Tudor. She married James the fourth, the King of the Scots. And so James the first is James the sixth of Scotland. He's descended from from Henry the seventh through Mary Tudor. So he is of royal descent. He's the closest, you know, relative there in the sense. So James the sixth of Scotland is offered the throne of England. And he becomes, James VI of Scotland becomes James I of England. So he's the king of Scotland, and he's the king of England. But just as a matter, England and Scotland didn't combine then. It was 100 years later, in seventeen the 1700s, that England and Scotland became the United Kingdom, as we think of the day. Scotland, you remember, almost jumped out of that just a while back. They had a vote, you know, to to remove themselves from the United Kingdom, but they didn't. But he was the king, so the, the, the kings that follow James the Sixth and the queen, they're, they're kings and queens of both countries, but it's still two separate countries here, but until 1700, still the unification comes. So, uh, James the James the Sixth is, he's a Scottish king. And the the Calvinists in the Church of England are very happy about him becoming king because he is in Scotland. We haven't talked about Scotland, but John Knox, who was at Geneva and worked on the Geneva Bible, went back to Scotland and led a reformation there. The Presbyterian Church developed out of that reformation. So Scotland was a very Calvinistic Presbyterian place. And so the, the, the Puritans, you remember we talked about in the Church of England at the time of Elizabeth there arose these people called the Puritans, people who were very Calvinistic, who wanted to purify the Church of England, get rid of these Roman Catholic leftovers, you know, and so forth. They were extremely happy about him becoming king because they thought, well, he's in Scotland. This man is this guy we want, you know. So he's, he comes down, travels on this long trip. takes a long time to get down from Scotland to England, and he's met by various people and greeted and so forth. The first thing he does is have a conference at Hampton Court here, one of the palaces of uh, Henry VIII that he took over from Cardinal Wolseley. And uh, he has a uh, conference there about various religious matters. And the Calvinists are going to try to get him to move the church more towards Puritanism, you know, away from Roman Catholicism. He's not really, what they don't really realize, he's not really one of them. He's not with them on that. But at this conference... Dr. John Reynolds. Hmm. I wonder what happened to this slide here. That's really strange, isn't it? Well, there is a picture there. There was a picture there. We just can't see it, right? Yeah, I, don't, I can't see it on the slide either. I don't know what's, what's, what happens here between here and home, but I don't, I don't see his picture there. Anyway, 
At this conference where King James was at, he held this conference in 1604 uh, at uh, Hampton Court. Uh, Reynolds proposed a new translation. He said, we need a new translation. We've, we've got the Bishop's Bible, but people are still unhappy with the Bishop's Bible. We need a new translation. And he pointed out some translation errors in the Bishop's Bible. He said, there are some problems with it. We need to deal with those problems and so forth. And King James, he liked the idea. He said, yeah, that's good. We need a new translation. Because I think we need a new translation. And there's one translation I really hate, and that's the Geneva Bible. Although they didn't want to hear that. You know, that, that was the Bible they really loved. But he said, I hate the Geneva Bible. He says, uh, I profess I, I have never seen a Bible well translated in English, but I think of all that Geneva is the worst. So uh, he uh, agrees that... Uh, we should, get, we, we should have a new Bible. He didn't like the Geneva Bible because the Geneva Bible had a lot of notes that were sort of anti, anti-monarchial. Uh, here's a note in Exodus chapter 1 and verse 19. You remember how Pharaoh had said that these midwives are supposed to kill these children who are born, you know? And the midwives, they wouldn't do it. They said they, 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 said they lied to the Pharaoh. They said, nah, these women, they're so... They just give birth so quickly, we can't, we can't kill them before they give birth and so forth. And there's a note here that says uh, their disobedience was lawful, but their dis- dissembling was evil. So they told a lie. But he said their disobedience was lawful. No king wants to hear anything in the Bible that says you can disobey the Pharaoh or disobey the king, you know, anything like that. So there was another note in Second Chronicles fifteen sixteen said that a, an evil monarch is worthy of death, an evil king. So he didn't like those notes in the Geneva Bible. So he said, "No, I don't like that Bible. Let's get a new translation." So uh, one of the persons who was opposed to the translation was a man by the name of Richard Bancroft. Uh, as I say here, here's here's his note. Here says, "He says if every man's humor were followed, there would be no end to translating." He said, we've got enough translation. We don't need another translation. Well, he ended up directing the project. After the king said, I want it, he said, okay. Okay, we'll have this new Bible, uh, and it'll be uh, sponsored by the king. The king's behind it and so forth. He ended up directing the project. There's some debate about how many people worked on this project. I say here, uh, Bancroft in a letter mentions 54 translators, which is good. Uh, most lists of them say there was probably only about 47. They were organized into different groups. They met at different places, at Oxford, at Cambridge, and Westminster. So they, they, this is a good procedure. This is the procedure that are followed in all modern translations. So they organized into six groups. Three groups of translators worked on the Old Testament. Two groups of translators worked on the New Testament. And one group worked on the Apocrypha. And yes, there was the Apocrypha translated. I mentioned this man here, Samuel Ward, because Samuel Ward was a man who was one of the translators and he worked on the Apocrypha. We haven't known a lot about the process of how the King James was translated, but if you saw in the news, I don't know if you saw in the news recently, but just about three weeks ago, it was announced in the Times, London Times Literary Supplement, um, that they had found the, the original translation notes of Samuel Ward and translate. He translated first Esdras um, in the Apocrypha. Here's the Apocrypha. 
So the Apocrypha is put in between, just like the Geneva did, between the Old and New Testament. So here's the title page. So when people say, I'm, I believe in the 1611 King James, not probably not, you know, because they probably don't want this Apocrypha here in the 1611. But the, the first book there is First Ezra, and Samuel Ward worked on First Ezra. He translated. And uh, some time ago, somebody had cataloged Samuel Ward's, a few years ago, his all his letters and documents, but they didn't know what this one document was until a professor, uh, an American English professor, went over there and was studying Samuel Ward and just recently found out that what, the, what they had had there was his original translation notes for First Ezra. It's the first thing we've ever found anything like that. And so now we have those uh, notes where he is giving his translation of First Ezra and so forth. So the King James did contain the Apocrypha, just like all these other Bibles did before. Um, so they had these groups of translators... They had uh, people working on a preface called the translators. Translators to the reader will will translate to the readers. We'll see that in a moment. I mentioned here under number five in revising the bishop's Bible, translators will consult the original languages as well as other versions, including Tyndall, Matthew, Coverdale's the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible. Now, when you look at the title page of the King James Version, it's a little deceptive. Because it'll say here, the Holy Bible containing the Old and New Testaments, newly translated out of the original tongue, with the former translations diligently compared and what? Revised by His Majesty's Special Commandment. So if you look at that, you think this is a new translation. Well, it wasn't a new translation. The rules drawn up by Bancroft said specifically. The Bishop's Bible is to be followed and as little altered as the truth the original will permit. These are the rules that Bancroft drew up here. I've just listed uh, seven of them here, but he actually had about 20 rules, but I've listed some of them. So they were supposed to make a revision of the Bishop's Bible, and that's exactly what they did. They printed up copies of the Bishop's Bible. They printed up about 50 copies, and they gave them to the translators, and they worked from basically the Bishop's Bible and revise that. They didn't start all over from fresh and new. So proper names are to be retained. The old ecclesiastical words are to be kept like, you remember, church, not congregation, like Tyndall had done, remember? The old ecclesiastical terms are retained and so forth. Um, so they had, he had the rules here for translation. Um, no change made in chapter divisions. No marginal notes at all. No marginal notes at all are to be affixed, but only for the explanation of the Hebrew or Greek, which cannot, without some circumlocution, so briefly and fitly be expressed in the text. So they followed these particular rules. I mentioned on number seven, when the whole Bible had been translated, it was reviewed by a smaller group of 12 men, two from each of the original six groups. So this was the best translation ever done up to this time. Vastly superior in the method it was done. One of the 12, John Boys, took notes of the meeting. And recently, uh, in 1964, we discovered his notes that he took of the translation meeting. I said that the Samuel Ward thing we just found was was actual notes of a translator who was actually translated. These are just notes of the meeting that were found. Boys uh, 
Um, and we have his notes now. Um, I mentioned under number eight, a study of the text of the King James shows that the Tyndall Coverdale versions were predominant sources, though they made use of Latin versions, they made use of they even made use of the Reims Catholic Old Testament is used. Germans Luther's translation was used. As far as the text they used, they used the Second Rabbinic Bible, the Hebrew text, the Second Rabbinic Bible, um, which is what all these Bibles did, 15, 24, 25. That's what the NIV uses. It's the Second Rabbinic Bible. Now, it's not called that anymore. It's called BHS, Biblical Hebraic Asus but it's the same exact thing. For the Greek text, he used the text receptors. Remember Erasmus? Remember? And then Biza was the uh, helper of Calvin. He took over for Calvin. Biza produced a number of editions. It's just a revision of the text receptors. 1598 is what the King James is based on. Um, the first edition I mentioned here was a large folio edition measuring 9 by 14 and a half inches printed in this sort of gothic type here you can see um, the original headings it's got you know chapter headings verse it's in the gothic type it actually uh, has paragraph markings there you can see a paragraph marking here um, down there the uh, it's interesting the King James had paragraph marks but they're, they stop at Acts 20.36. So there's these paragraph marks. Uh, hard to see that. I should have had a blow up with that. But they're just regular paragraph marks indicate a new section and so forth. But for some reason, they stopped at Acts 20.36. There's actually only one in the book of Psalms. So they're, they're hit and miss, kind of, in, in, the, in the book of... Uh, now, paragraph marks are just marks put in by translators. The original... Greek and Hebrew don't contain any divisions like that at all. What is interesting is this uh, this preface they put in called the Translators to the Reader. Uh, they put in this preface to explain what they were doing, what they were trying to accomplish, what the translators were trying to accomplish. And I say, in the preface, number 10, the translators are aware that their translation would face a great deal of opposition especially from those who saw no need for a new translation in English. You already had all these other translations. Tyndall, the Great Bible, Coverdale's Bible, Matthew's Bible, Geneva Bible, Bishop's. Why do you need another one? Especially the Roman Catholics complained. Why do you need all these Bibles? You know, why don't we, just, we just have one Bible, the Latin Vulgate. Why do you have all these Bibles and one English translation? And uh, so in the preface here, they discuss this, and they give us some information. Here's what they say. Zeal to promote the common good, whether it be by devising anything ourselves or revising that which hath been labored by others, deserveth certainly much respect and esteem, but yet findeth but cold entertainment, cold reception in the world. It is welcomed with suspicion instead of love and with emulation instead of thanks. And if there had been any hole left for Cavill to enter, it is sure to be misconstrued and in danger to be condemned. This will be easily granted by as many as know history, story, history, or have any experience. For was there ever anything projected that savored any way of newness or renewing, but that the same endured many a storm of gainsaying or opposition? They go on to say, 
This and more to this purpose, his majesty that now reigneth knew full well according to the singular wisdom given unto him by God, this is King James, and the rare learning and experience that he hath attained unto. Namely, that whosoever attempteth anything for the public, especially if it pertain to the religion and to the opening and clearing of the word of God, the same setteth himself upon a stage to be glouted upon by every evil eye. Yea, he cast himself headlong upon pikes to be gored by every sharp tongue. For he that meddleth with men's religion in any part meddleth with their custom, nay, with their freehold. And though they find no content in which that which they have, yet they cannot abide to the hear of altering it. Toward the middle of the preface, the translators return to the objection that, uh, you know, this is a new translation. They try to deal with some of the objections. They say, Many men's mouths have been opened a good while and yet are not stopped with speeches about the translation so long in hand. Or rather, perusals of the translations made before and ask, what hath been the reason, what the necessity of the employment? Hath the church been deceived, say they, all this while? Was their translation good before? Why do they now mend it? Was it not good? Why then was it obtruded to the people? You see the objection? The objection says, listen, you got all these translations. If they were good, if they were the word of God, why do you need another one, right? And if it wasn't the word of God, then why would, why did you give us those Bibles? You see, you know, you can't win here. <laughs> we find the, the answer to that objection. As I say, number 11, the translators recognize that all translations, since they are done by fallible men, are not perfect and thus can be improved upon. They say, yet for all that, as nothing is begun and perfected at the same time, and the latter thoughts are thought to be wiser, so if we building upon their foundation, these previous translators, Coverdale, Tyndall, that went before us and being helped by their labors, do endeavor to make that better which they left so good, no man, we are sure, hath cause to mislike us. They, those previous translators, we persuade ourselves, if they were alive, would thank us. So here's the obvious reason why there, needs, why there is this continuous steam, uh, stream of English translations. Translations can always be improved upon. And the translators of the King James would not have objected to people improving upon their work. So, here's what they say. Therefore, let no man's eye be evil, because his majesty is good. Neither let any be grieved that we have a prince that seeketh the increase of the spiritual wealth of Israel. But let us rather bless God from the ground of our heart for the working of this religious care in him, to have the translations of the Bible maturely considered and uh, of and examined. For by this means it cometh to pass that whatsoever is sound already, and all is sound for substance in one or other of our editions. You know, the basic substance of the great Bible, the bishop's Bible, they're all good. And the worst of ours is far better than, than their authentic vulgar. Now that's a reference to the Vulgate. Our English translators' translations are better than their Vulgate. The same will shine as gold more brightly being rubbed and polished. Also, if anything be halting or superfluous or not so agreeable to the original, the same may be corrected and the truth set in place. Number 12, the translators admired the work of previous translators and recognized that other translations are also the word of God even if they contain minor errors. In fact, they acknowledge here that errorless translation is impossible 
because translators are not apostles. They're not writers of Scripture. They're not superintended by the Holy Spirit. They say, and to the same effect say we, that we are far off from condemning any of their labors that traveled before us in this kind, any previous translators, neither in this land, England, or beyond the sea, like Tyndall, Coverdale, either in King Henry's time or King Edward's time, if there were any translations or corrections of a translation in his time, or Queen Elizabeth of ever-renowned memory, that we acknowledge them to have been raised up of God for the building and furnishing of the church and that they deserve to be had of us in a posterity and everlasting remembrance. Now to the latter we answer that we do not deny, nay, we affirm and avow that the very meanest, the poorest translation of the Bible in English set forth by men of our profession, that is, people, Protestants, people in the Church of England, for we have seen none of theirs of the whole Bible as yet. Now, well, that's talking about the Roman Catholics. Remember, the Douay Reims, the New Testament had come out in 1580, but the, the complete Bible did not come out until 1609-1610, Volume 1, Volume 2. They're writing this before they have seen the complete Douay Reims Old Testament. And so they're saying here, we have seen none of theirs of the whole Bible as yet. So let me go back to the context here. We affirm and avow that the very meanest translation of the Bible in English set forth by men of our profession containeth the word of God, nay, is the word of God. As the king's speech, which he uttereth in Parliament, being translated into French, Dutch, Italian, and Latin, is still the king's speech, though it not be not interpreted by every translator with like grace. Our peradventure so fitly for phrase, nor so expressly for sense everywhere... A man may be counted a virtuous man, though he may have many slips in his life. Also a comely man and lovely, though he may have some warts on his hand. Yea, not only freckles on his face, but also scars. No cause, therefore, why the word translated should be denied to be the word, or forbidden to be current, notwithstanding that some imperfections and blemishes may be noted in the setting forth of it. For whatever was perfect under the sun were apostles or apostolic men that is, men endued with an extraordinary measure of God's spirit and privileged with the privilege and infallibility had not their hand. So they're saying the only thing that's infallible, inerrant, ultimately, is the original Greek and Hebrew manuscripts, the Greek texts, you know. Translations are produced by fallible men. We try to make them as perfect as we can, but we don't claim that they're perfect as the originals. The, translation, the translators next give an example of what they consider to be a translation with a lot of defects, but it's still the Word of God. They say, the translation of the 70 descended from the original. What's that translation of the 70? I'm waiting for the Septuagint back there. I'm waiting for Aaron back there. He's our, he's our resident Septuagint expert back there. You remember this? So the translation of the 70 descended from the original in many places. Remember, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In numerous places, neither doth it come near it for perspicuity, gravity, majesty, which of the apostles did condemn it? Condemn it? Nay, they used it, as is apparent, as St. Jerome and most learned men do confess, which they had not have done nor by their example of using it so grace and commended the church if it had been unworthy the appellation and name of the word of God. 
I say 13, the translators answer the objection that their work only adds to the proliferation of English translation. They say there's nothing particularly unique about their work. It's only a continuation of the process of revision, of making improvements in translations. Yea, before we end, we must answer a third cavil, an objection of theirs, for altering and amending our translations so often, wherein truly they deal hardly and strangely with us. For to whom was it ever imputed for a fault, by such as were wise, to go over that which he hath done, and to amend it where he saw cause? But it is high time to leave them, and to show in brief what we proposed to ourselves, and what course we held in this our perusal and survey of the Bible. Truly, good Christian reader, we never thought from the beginning that we should need to make a new translation, nor yet to make of a bad one a good one, but to make a good one better, or out of many good ones, one principal good one, not justly to be accept, accepted against. That hath been our endeavor, that our mark. I mentioned there's a lot of uh, marginal notes in the King James Version. Uh, the translators weren't opposed to these. 6,637 in the Old Testament, 1,018 in the Apocrypha. They say some peradventure would have no variety of senses to be set in the margins, lest the authority of Scripture for deciding controversies by that show of uncertainty should somewhat be shaken. But we hold their judgment not to be so sound in this point. It had pleased God in his divine providence here and there to scatter words and sentences of that difficulty and doubtless not in doctrinal points that concern salvation, but in matters of less moment. That fearfulness would better, uh, better beseem us than confidence. Now, in such a case, the thought of margin do well to admonish the reader to seek further and to conclude, conclude or dogmatize upon that peremptorily. Therefore, as St. Augustine said, said, that variety of translations is profitable for finding out the sense of the scriptures. So diversity of signification and sense in the margin where the text is not so clear must needs do good. Yea, it is necessary as we are persuaded. They that are wise had rather have their judgments at liberty indifference of readings than to be captivated to one when it may be the other. So the King James Version has about 8,422 marginal notes. Now, modern King James Versions don't have these. They've been left out over time. You don't see those marginal notes. But you have all kinds of marginal notes here. You have marginal notes uh, like here. This is Matthew 16:33. And here we have a note about different manuscripts, uh, or different uh, different transplanatory notes, I'm sorry. It says in the margin, the word in the Greek is a measure containing about a peck and a half, wanting little more than a pint. So this is a marginal note that's just explaining the text. Nothing wrong with that. Here's a marginal note, Matthew 6, 2. Uh, here's an alternate translation. Uh, the text reads, Therefore, when thou dost thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee. The margin suggests there, uh, Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, calls not a trumpet to be sounded before thee. So there's all these marginal notes. Here's a more literal translation in Romans 7, 5. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin 
The Greek text says emotions is literally passions there in the text. Um, here we even find a variant reading in the Greek text. Remember, remember, King James, all people are very opposed to, they think that the King James cannot be changed or modified. Here's a, here's a marginal reading in the King James, which mentions different manuscripts. It says, uh, besides the words, two men shall be in the field, the one shall be taken, the other left. The margin says, this verse 36 is warning in most of the Greek copies. They say, we've got this verse 36 in here, but most of the Greek manuscripts don't even have that verse in there. So they're not opposed to this kind of information, is what I'm trying to say. Well, the King James Version replaced the Bishop's Bible in the Church of England, and rightly so, because it was extremely well done. It's the best of these translations we've seen. Naturally, people build upon what's done before, as they say. They polished, they made it better. And so the King James became the authorized version in the Church of England. We've gone over, so we better stop here. And Lord willing, we'll pick up next week. All right? Thank you.